We are going to begin this course by looking at offer and acceptance, collectively called agreement. Before we move on, it is important to note that many students find the law of contract subject itself quite overwhelming, partially because they feel it's complex coming into the LLB program in their first years, and partially because of the enormous amount of case law. But in this course, I have provided uh, case summaries as well as spider graphs, which will make it much easier for you to understand and get an overview of the entire subject. So, for instance, if you consider a case like Confetti and Warner Music or Carlisle and Carbolic Smoke Balls, both these cases are similar as regards to agreement or offer and acceptance, but many might not be able to put it in context or in a bigger picture. But with the case summaries that have been provided along with this course, you'll be able to glance at the case law itself and in a very digestible manner, have the best possible understanding of it before moving forward to the next topic. Also, it must be noted that this particular course itself is merely a supplement. It provides you with the basic overview along with the little nooks and crannies that you might have missed along with arguments which is something which is essential when you are writing for your examinations in May or November. Having said that, you need to understand that the law of contracts is an exciting subject. It's a subject in which you have the freedom to utilize a very technical aspect of the law and put an argumentative spin on it. It's also very sequential. What do I mean by this? Well, unlike many other first-year subjects, you need to understand this topic in a step-by-step -step mechanism. For instance, if there is a particular situation or scenario that has been posed to you, you must understand that you have to look at it in pieces, but in order as well. So, for instance, you have to first determine if there was in fact an offer made by a party, because there are so many instances in which it might seem like an offer, but it's not, and we'll look at that in this particular topic as well. Next, you must determine if the offer was properly accepted by the other party. And in the whole scheme of things, in order for that particular offer and acceptance or the agreement to have been binding, there must have been, as McKendrick calls it, the badge of enforceability, consideration. Once we have this trifecta in place, we must determine whether there was an intention to create any sort of legal relations. And this relates to certain domestic agreements that one might have. Once all these factors are in place, the next quotient is to determine if, in fact, a breach has occurred by one party. And once a breach has been established, whether it is important enough to be considered a condition, which would mean that a contract can be terminated, or if it's merely a warranty, in which case some form of damages is necessary. Also, we must determine if any exclusion clauses were in place, and if so, whether they were valid in reference to legislative instruments and acts and the common law as well. Once we consider the entire contract itself as a whole, and we cannot determine whether there was some form of breach that has occurred, or whether there was a fault on the hand of one party, we can even look at whether there was some form of misrepresentation made by one party before the contract was even entered into. This is what I meant when I said it's an exciting topic, because it is, in essence, an investigation, and that's how I looked at it when I studied for my LLB. So, having said that, let's have a look at our very first topic, agreement. There are many definitions for what a contract is, 
And without going into much detail, for the purposes of this course, we will define contracts as voluntary obligations undertaken by two or more parties, which is supported by consideration. Now, there is more to it than that, but the basic elements or the trifecta of offer, acceptance and consideration are involved in this particular definition. So to begin with, in relation to agreement, we must look at offer. Now, there are several different ways of looking at what an offer is. And the simplest form of it would be a statement of commitment, which must be supported unconditionally by an acceptance. But how I looked at it was, it is rather simpler to have or to gauge what an offer is not rather than exactly what it is. So we'll look at that a bit later. First of all, in R and Clark, it was stated that an offer must be properly communicated. This can be either in written or in verbal form. There are instances in which an offer is blindly in the air. What I mean by this is, as in hide and wrench, there might simply be a counteroffer made by a party rather than acceptance. This occurs when there are conditions imposed upon the offer itself by the respective party. For instance, if A agrees to sell a table for £50 and B asks A whether he would accept £45, this would amount to a counteroffer and obviously not acceptance of it as the price quotient of that offer has been qualified. Where communication might have broken down in relation to the offer being made, there are instances, as in Tin and Hoffman, where cross-offers have taken place, where both parties, in essence, have made the same offer or similar offers and neither having accepted either. Since there are several different resources to determine what exactly an offer is, let's look at something quite different and argumentative, which is what exactly is an offer not? Now, on the one hand, in Harvey and Facey, we see instances of a mere supply of information. Every single statement made by a person cannot be afforded as an offer. So, for instance, if I ask you how much would a loaf of bread be, and if you were to answer me as a loaf of bread would be $1, it might not necessarily be an offer. In essence, you have responded to a query of mine. Another instance where something is similar but not equivalent to an offer is where there is a statement of intention. Now, we must be very careful in determining what amounts to an offer and what amounts to a mere statement of intention. Now, in Harris and Nickerson, this is outlined quite clearly, and I urge you to have a look at it in the case summaries. But suffice to say, if you would recall the initial definition that I posed to you in relation to offer, which was a statement of commitment, it draws a parallel with this, where an intention might not be equivalent to an actual commitment being made by one party. One of the most pivotal areas in determining what an offer is and what it is not is where there is an invitation to treat. Now, there are several forms of an invitation to treat, but one of the most simplest mechanisms to explain what an invitation to treat is would be a storefront or a display, as in Fisher and Bell. For instance, when you go into a shop and there is something for sale uh, for a specific amount on display, the natural notion is that you would say the company or the particular store is offering me something to which I must accept. But in actuality, what the display is or what is being 
showcased itself is an invitation to treat for which we must make the offer and the store owner or the cashier must accept payment or the consideration to conclude the contract. Now, there are exceptions to this and an interesting case in this regard is Thornton and Shoe Lane Parking Limited. Now, this case related to an automatic parking facility, as in where you swipe through and go in. It's a quite an interesting case, and for the details, as well as a very thorough summary, have a look at the case summaries. It elucidates more on why this is an exception to an invitation to treat by form of a display. An auction is another form of an invitation to treat and not an offer. However, an exception to this also is seen in Barry and Davis. Essentially, an advertisement on a newspaper or any other electronic media is considered as an invitation to treat as well, rather than an offer, as held in Partridge and Crittenden. But a very seminal and a famous exception to this is Carlisle and Carbolic Smoke Balls. So have a look at that in the case summaries. Much like an auction, a tender is also considered to be an invitation to treat. However, there are exceptions to this as well as seen in Blackpool. Much like auctions, even tenders, if it goes beyond the purview for which uh, the tacit rules are applied to, it is clear that the exceptions would imply. It is important to note that when we are answering examination questions or when we are looking at scenarios, we must determine all of the elements in turn, as in whether there is an offer, if it has been accepted, whether there are considerations, and so on and so forth. So in that regard, one pivotal aspect that most students fail to realize is that in certain occasions, questions might be left open-ended to determine whether you are able to spot a loophole in relation to the scenario. Now, one such instance in the case of an argument that you can bring up is when exactly an offer extinguishes. What do I mean by this? Well, for example, the simplest form of an offer ending is when it has been properly accepted. When there is a proper offer and an acceptance, an agreement is formed. But there are situations in which an offer can extinguish without an acceptance having been made. For example, if there is some form of condition which was unfulfilled, as we discussed earlier, there might have been a counteroffer made by party B in relation to offer made by A, in which case the original offer extinguishes. Another would be as in hide and wrench, where there is rejection, where party A makes an offer and party B outrightly rejects it. There might be occasions when there is a lapse of time as well, as in Davies and Ramsgate even. Now in some cases, the parties might officiously mention a lapse date. For instance, this offer is valid for 30 days. But in other occasions, court might have to infer a lapse based on the reasonable time frame. Now this is in relation to perhaps a similar contract or a similar sale of goods event, so on and so forth. We can also look at situations where there is a change of mind. Now, it's not necessary to consider this as a separate element in itself, but it is one rationale, one justification, as in Dickinson and Dodds. A very morbid example of it also would be where the party who has offered has unfortunately died, in which case there is a definite end of the offer itself. Now that we have considered the various elements that make up an offer, 
we must look at what acceptance is. Now, we mentioned earlier that an offer is a statement of unconditional commitment. Now, there are two cases in the case summaries itself that is valid looking at. One is Feldhausen Bindley and the second is Confetti and Warner Music. Both of these cases outline the fact that an acceptance can be made by words or conduct and that silence cannot amount to proper acceptance. But there are certain instances where exceptions do apply in relation to an acceptance having need to be communicated. On the one hand, you have occasions where it is inferred to be waived. We looked at Carlisle and Carbolic smoke balls a bit earlier in relation to uh, an exception to an invitation to treat. In the same regard, in relation to acceptance, it was considered to be a unilateral contract, as in the advertisement itself. We must consider also the exception to acceptance as found in the postal rule, also seen in Adams and Linzel. Now, it's elucidated in the case summaries as well, but very simply, the postal rule suggests that the normal, the general consensus that acceptance must be communicated is non-existent in relation to mail, where once posted is considered accepted. This might seem trivial and at times illogical, but the postal rule suggests that at the point a particular letter or a mail is posted or handed over to the postal service, it becomes uh, the point of the postal service to do the delivery and at which point the acceptance actually occurs when the party, let's say A, has done the acceptance by posting a mail. Now, there are several different areas that we must look at in relation to the mode the post has been done. For instance, there are occasions in which the offer itself stipulates that the acceptance must be made in a specific format, in which case, if it was not done so in that format, regardless of the postal rule, there might be occasions in which uh, this exception uh, will not apply. Now, what's interesting to note in relation to the postal rule is how far it is applicable to a contemporary context. Now, an exception to the postal rule can be found in Entoris and Miles Far East, uh, also available in the case summaries. In relation to, for example, telex or faxes or even in a contemporary regard, emails, how far does the postal rule apply? There are occasions in which you will encounter examination questions purely on the postal rule itself, either uh, problem questions or even essay type questions, because it's quite difficult to denote whether the same rule in relation to mail can be applied in relation to electronic forms of transfer, whether considering the postal service as the agent of the person who's accepting versus maybe the internet service provider as the person who represents the postal service in relation to acceptance in the digital age. So it's it's a concept that you might have to deal with and you can argue on as well. In any regard, what is important is when a confusion may arise in relation to the postal rule, what we must consult is what was stipulated or the mode of acceptance stipulated by the offeror. It might have been a situation in which the offeror has stated you must use traditional forms such as mail 
in order to accept this offer or stipulated several different modes of acceptance or not mention anything at all. And it is with this in mind that we must consider the outcome of any particular decision that would be taken in relation to an agreement being in place uh, in respect of a contract. That was agreement, or in other words, offer and acceptance. The very first steps in order to determine if a contract has been made by two or more parties. Next, we move on to what McKendrick calls the badge of enforceability, consideration. <laughs> 